0: Hello, and welcome back to Parity Radio. In this episode, I speak to a gentleman called Charles Nix, who is the creative director for the Type Foundry Monotype. I discuss many things, including uh, his early influences and his early career, uh, his time in education, uh, the future of type design, the inevitable AI questions come up, um, and I ask him if AI is going to kill everyone. You know, the normal stuff. <laughs> And yeah, um, I don't want to tell you all this for you, you're listening to it. So I don't, I don't know why I do these for. but yeah, um, enjoy. So yeah, for the people that will be listening to this, that maybe don't have the pleasure of knowing yourself, could you give them a bit of a rundown as to who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. I am Charles Nix. I'm a creative type director. Nope, I have to scratch that. I'm Charles Nix, and I'm an executive creative director at Monotype. Um, up until last year, I was a creative type director. As an executive creative director, I work with our largest customers um, to achieve whatever typographic vision they have. And generally, that typographic vision includes things like navigating this massive library of typefaces that Monotype has. Um, But it also involves um, more bespoke things like creating modified typefaces. So taking something that exists in our library of type and creating a specialized version of it. And that could be just renaming it, or it could be um, changing the shapes of a couple of characters. It could be adding language extensions. There are a lot of things that you can do to modify an existing typeface. And then there's this third thing that we do um called custom typefaces. And those I think a lot of people are familiar with now. They weren't so familiar 20 years ago, but now they're kind of the fabric of branding. Um and those are typefaces that are built from the ground up. So typefaces that come from an idea. Um I have not always been either a creative type director or an executive creative director <laughs> prior to my incarnation at Monotype as a Type designer. Um, I worked in publishing and um, and in education. So I worked at the Parsons School of Design. I did a little bit of work at Cooper Union where I graduated, um, and I worked for all of the all of the publishers. Um, so yeah, that's that's a little rundown about who I am.
0: Um, so yeah, to begin with, I like to discuss where people sort of early interest in the design world came from. And from what I understand, with yourself, as your father was a printmaker. And it sort of design, sort of posters and things for your local community. Could you touch on maybe how that sort of influenced yourself early on? Sure. So, um, you know, it's one of
1: those things that when you're growing up, you don't really think twice about it because, you know, um, children adapt to whatever situation they're put in. <laughs> we had a printing press in our basement from uh, when I was a, a, a really young person. Um, I remember it being moved in Um, and it was sort of my dad's after school and weekend or after work and weekend um, uh, printing press. So during the day, he worked for a large earth moving equipment company, a General Motors Corporation um, doing their in-house printing, but on the weekends and in the evenings, Um, he would do print for local block club organizations and for the, for the local church. So printing church bulletins for weekend mass, um, but also just sort of block club news, like local goings on for, for local organizations. Um, so, and you know, odds and ends, little, little printing jobs. So there were, I'm one of six children and I sort of sit firmly in the middle of that large family. And, um, we as kids would have things we 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 called folding parties <laughs> and we just thought I mean again, as you're going through it you don't sort of question it but um I realize now how strange it was that all six of us would be sitting down with stacks of unfolded paper creating gate folds or um, half folds or trifolds or whatever. Um, we would each have our own little um, uh, dab of glycerin so that we could, Count out the proper number of sheets. We do half folds, and then we all had bone folders, um, and we would count them up and and make sure that we delivered the right number of printed pieces. And you know, have to keep in mind, we ranged, I think, in age at that point from three to oh, that's a, from three to twelve, I think. Um, and yeah, that was that was very much how it was as um, as a child in our house. So. I was surrounded by printing and type as a result of the printing um, and graphic arts. Um, we had a light table. Uh, we had all kinds of sort of typesetting equipment, type retouching equipment, layout equipment around. Exacto blades were part of my childhood. There are a lot of things that, again, I took for granted, but then I found out later were sort of peculiar. Um, That said, when I left for college, I thought I was going to become a painter. Um, I really liked painting, um, and I liked drawing. I still do. Um, and I thought that that was the, that was the sort of path for me. Um, but when I got to college, I found the most interesting conversations were happening in the design department and specifically around typography and design. Um, And there were a few people who I met in my college years who, who are, I consider now mentors and really helped push me back towards my, (laughs) towards my, my origin um, as a printer's son, um, sort of like convinced me that um, typography was a pursuit of grown people, Mm that professionals did it. So, anyways, it's sort of a long, long winded um, story, but
0: there you go. Do you have um, mentioned a sort of patent things? Do you have like a favorite artist at all? Um, that's also, f- uh, you know, I have all
1: the ones you would expect, like Ed Ruscha, um Cy Twombly as a favorite of mine. Um, I don't know. I mean, i <laughs> I do tend to gravitate towards artists who have typography and graphic imagery um as part of their their work. Um and I like conceptual artists too. And uh so um I did early on in my publishing career work with Joseph Kassuth on a book called The Play of the Unmentionable, which was about uh censorship and art. Um, and it was heavily um heavily dotted with typography. And um Fred Wilson's um, play of the no, Fred Wilson's Mining the Museum was another book that I worked on um again with a conceptual artist um who um who relied heavily on typography and and graphic storytelling. Um so uh, and Hans Haka of course I'm sorry I shouldn't say of course Hans Haka is to me the sort of one of the godfathers of conceptual art, um, and as a student, I worked with Hans on making typefaces for some of his art projects, um, which was um, a key introduction to um, digital type making for me. Um, it was that that really sort of key period from 1989 to 1991 when um, type was becoming. Digital.
0: Jumping back to you, sort of mentioned going to college. Um, do you have any sort of seminal moments that you can remember from your college years that really sort of spurred you on uh, in your development? Um, yeah. I mean, there were there's there there are qu-
1: quite a few. Um, but I I'll peg it on people as opposed to 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 moments. Um, because it is. I mean, I was discussing with Phil Garnham today um my fellow um, executive creative director at monotype that um as designers we were so much more in tune with the sort of process oriented nature of things that um we are comfortable with the fact that it's not these sort of aha moments so much as aha experience <laughs> so my first experience was with William Babington who um who was my first typography instructor um and his enthusiasm, sort of unbridled enthusiasm for typography, at a very pivotal point in my life when I was still a teenager, um, made a great deal of difference. Um, and again, it wasn't the sort of it wasn't the moment as much as the sort of 15 weeks that I spent with him in my sophomore year that really sort of opened my eyes to the possibilities of typography as a career. Um, George Sadek, who was my first my my boss at my 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 boss's boss at my work study job which was at the Cooper Union Center for Design and Typography um and later george was my um my junior level uh, typography instructor um his combination of uh dead seriousness about the craft of typography and sort of whimsical dadaistic um ideas of creativity um still sort of uh form a great deal of how i think about um, typography and design um don koons who was my calligraphy instructor um slowed me down enough to uh concentrate on um what it meant to make quality typographic or graphic marks or letter forms. Um, and, you know, sort of brought brought to uh, my education, this idea that there's a, a vocational or spiritual aspect to to design and typography. And I know there are, there are probably other pivotal moments, but those are the ones that sort of stick out to me.
0: Mm. You wouldn't, at least from my perspective, being in the position you are at the company, while well, you wouldn't think that your influences were sort of Dada and things like that. You'd think it's kind of like suit and tie, almost. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: um, there is a. I. I do. I do like that sort of suit and tie anachronistic aspect of the mm-hmm. sort of monotype re- reputation, but um, progress comes from thinking about things in ways that other people have not thought about them, and mm-hmm. Sometimes that requires, you know, that sort of dadaistic mentality of just sort of saying like, I'm going to do the opposite just because the opposite needs to be done mm. um, in order to find, you know, to find what happens next or where we can go that we haven't been before.
0: Jumping back to your career and sort of the path going upwards, um, from what I understand, once you graduated, you worked at a company called the The New Press and I was having a sniff around on their website, and they described themselves as a book publisher with a social justice mission. Um, sort of leading on from that. Is sort of doing better in the world something that's important to your work at all?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it, again, something that sort of popped into my head this this morning um, that there is... So when I when I left um, left my childhood home, I could leave my childhood home because I've been working since I was thirteen. <laughs> I, not whether that was precocious; it's just that I had a yen for, you know, a nice pair of jeans or to buy my own music. And so, I, my mom and my sister helped me get a job—a um, you know, a silly thirteen-year-old's job—but um, I was able to earn money to sort of um, begin paying my way in the world. And then by the time I was 15, I was working in construction and sort of saving money to come to New York. Like I already knew at that age that I needed to sort of sock away some cash so I could go to New York to go to art school. Um, all of this not is, is crowing. It is, it's me bragging about working since I was 13. But it is to say that when somebody has their own when a child has their own money, there's, there's, you can't really stop them from doing the thing that they want to do. Similarly, if someone's not interested in money, then they're far m- more liable to do whatever they want <laughs> than somebody who's obsessed with money. And um, and George Sadek used to say there are, you know, there are three or four different types of people in the world, but. The the ones you have to watch out for the for the most are the ones who are in it for not for the glory but are in it because they're they're they feel philosophically or religiously drawn to it. Whereas somebody who's in it for the money is relatively easy to to sort of peg and 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 satisfy. Um, they're not going to derail you from what you want to do. But somebody who has a sort of um, religious zeal about what they do is sort of is sort of dangerous. <laughs> in a way, just because you can't buy them off. <clears throat> All by way of going back to the the New Press and sort of publishers in the public interest, the, um, which is what how they build themselves when I worked with them. Their goal was not to make a ton of money. Their goal was to, to change the world through publishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and my goal now is not to change the world through publishing. But I do want the world to change, and I do want to make change through the work that I do, um, and I'm less concerned about um, grabbing stacks of cash than I am with the you know, the impact of the work that I do um, mm-hmm. on the world and on people around me. Um, so, yeah, I suppose it is still – it was a part of me that drove me to work with them, and it's a part of – of what I did with them that still sticks with me.
0: What does what does changing the world with typography look like?
1: Hmm. Um it's sort of like changing the world with printing um in a way, um I think, because what we do as type designers or as typographers has um is a lot like what printers were doing in the in the Fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth century was mm. providing the the mechanism by which people can express themselves yeah. um, and create change. So, I mean, we're part of that equation. Um, sometimes we can be a very charismatic part of that equation. So, creating typographic form that actually carries meaning that's quite visible, mm. um, and sometimes it's just being the the functional tool for conveying uh, deep thought.
0: Yeah, this is kind of a bit of a quick fire a little bit, but um, obviously since sort of your college days and, you know, working, you've designed a lot of typefaces. Uh, and I wanted to ask you quite a quick little couple of questions. First of all, what's your favorite typeface, if I could push you on that? I My pat, I, I do have a pat answer for that, which is
1: the my favorite typeface is always the last one that I designed. Mm. Um, and it, I mean, uh, that's self-serving because it sort of allows me to talk about the last typeface that I designed. But I mean, hopefully the last one is the, you know, is that much closer to where you want to, you know, to push your art form or your, your design form. Um, so for, for me right now, ambiguity is still my favorite typeface and, um, it's my favorite because it's, I consider it, um, modern. It's to me. Um, a typeface that was born out of a concept as opposed to a, um, an existing style. It's not a reinterpretation. Um, it's not an update. It's it's actually something that uh, synthetically I arrived at by thinking about um, the history of typography and where I
0: wanted it to go next. Hmm. So
1: it's my favorite.
0: Uh, and then the second one, sort of jumping off of that, what do you think makes a good typeface?
1: <clears> hmm. <throat> Um, I don't know. I mean, it, that becomes so um so much about what the intent of the communic- communicator is, hmm. um that it's difficult to sort of say any more than that. Um, something that satisfies the needs of the communicator. <laughs> um, and you know, because there are, there is that major division in typography between the charismatic display typography like the big type that people read, but also see. They pay attention to the shape of the form and the meaning of the words. And then there is text typography, which um, is very much about creating um, uh, the optimal uh, accessibility and legibility conditions for communication. So making words... Uh, communicate their meaning transferring ideas from one brain to another it's very it's super functional but it can do it in a an incredibly elegant way and with a subtle psychological rub that really Mm. sort of washes over someone as they take in vast amounts of information um so i mean even in that major divide between display and text um what makes a good typeface is is of You know it's a very different one what makes a great display typeface is not what makes a great text typeface um what makes a great text typeface and i think i've said this before so i'll try and quote myself accurately um a good text typeface um does its job so well that you barely know that it's there um but it has um that um again subtle psychological rub that sort of idea um, underneath it that works on the on the reader and sort of conveys whatever it want, whatever the designer wants it to convey it could be confidence, um, it could be uh, trustworthiness it could be happiness it could be any number of things but that sort of that secondary um, desire to communicate or that desire to communicate via the form is secondary to the functional aspect of the typography.
0: There was a, um, I can't remember what the typeface was called exactly, or even the, I think it was a design agency that designed it, but they had designed a typeface for the Braille Institute. Um, And it was a specific typeface that was designed for sort of legibility for people with learning disabilities. and. do you have any thoughts on the idea of like taking a typeface and then bastardizing it sort of almost for people like people with, you know, dyslexia or visual impairment that maybe, you know, if you're making each character look completely different to each other, it's easier for them to read, but ultimately it kind of destroys the, 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 the key, the key-tiveness to, to the typeface. Do you have any thoughts on sort of the sort of the, the bridge between the two, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think... A typeface that helps
1: somebody uh, that helps somebody understand words through through reading, mm-hmm. um, regardless of how it looks, is is a successful thing. That said, I don't know in those typefaces that are that are um, um, designed to help people who have various forms of dyslexia. Um, whether there is any one solution that will help everyone in every form of dyslexia. That said, if there is, (laughs) you know, you've heard it before, if it helps one person, then it's worth it. Um, And in publishing at the New Press, there was quite often, um, you know, small numbers of books for very small audiences, but people who definitely needed to um, to be um, to be published to, um, or published for. Uh, similarly, designing designing type. I mean, there's so many type designers now, so many more than when I was a child. Um, that the idea of creating much more sort of specific typographic designs in order to help um, smaller and smaller segments of um, of the reading population become better and better readers. Uh, why not? Um, the form is relatively unimportant. When push comes to shove, the effect of communication is the thing that you're going for. So if it looks terrible but communicates incredibly well, um, it may not satisfy me as a sort of aesthete, but it would definitely satisfy me as a sort of
0: um designer, as a mm-hmm. as a sort of functionalist. On. On the the, the the note of sort of the fact that there's like a million and one typeface designers now, um, there's obviously a typeface website called Defont the and there's sort of similar things like that. Do you have any views on sort of that sort of region of thing?
1: Um, I have probably um, uh, at various points in my career and in my education, which is ongoing, sort of vacillated on this. Um, or thought about it very differently. Um, right now, I'm of the mind that, um, that there can never be too many typefaces. Hmm. Um, and unfortunately, there can never be too many quality typefaces too. The, and what makes a quality typeface is sort of apparent to those of us who make typefaces for a living and maybe not so apparent to somebody who's trying it for the first time um that said sometimes a simple sloppy typeface is what the communication requires and so why not the problem is not the form of the type the problem is connecting people who have a need for that form uh, with that typeface so i mean you look at the font and someone like me could spend the better part of a day, uh, many days of the year, just sort of wading through different typefaces and making snap judgments about their efficacy, um, or just doing it to be not to make judgments, but to to sort of to read them as form. But the the average user doesn't do that. <laughs> the average user has a really difficult. Um, road ahead of them when they try and choose a typeface because there are so many available. Yeah. And the sort of web 1.0 or web 2.0 versions of what it means to find a typeface aren't really addressing that idea yet. They're still sort of, they're still woefully inadequate to connect people with with um, non-professional needs, but very real needs to the typefaces that they that they want or need, um, so not terribly upset about the the typefaces. Not so happy with the interface that allows me to to look at them and to sort of get to the thing that
0: I need. Yeah, in a in a similar sort of vein, do you have any views on sort of font piracy? Um, again, so something. It's a it's a topic that
1: I've thought about a lot, obviously over the past three decades. And it used to be the thing that, I mean, it was the bane of every, It's probably still is, the bane of every type designer's existence. Like, for every person that buys your typeface, there are 10 people who don't buy your typeface. And for every person, 10 people that buy your typeface, the, there are probably nine and a half that don't understand that they don't own it, that they're just licensing it from you. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of education to be done um, in 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 terms of um, helping people understand what um, what it means to license a typeface and who the people are behind those typefaces and why it's right to to um, compensate them for their work, but there's also um, is there any is there any sort of flip side to that? I don't know that there is. Um, I think it is it's an education thing you're always going to have people who want to steal things especially when it's really easy to steal them hmm. um i think maybe where i was where i was going at the very beginning of this answer was that we are entering a an age of um of streaming and this idea of stealing typefaces by copying files is going to become less and less of a thing i mean Mm -hmm. we used to steal type i mean steal uh music all of us did we copied mp3 files it just seemed like we you know we were ripping them from the dvd or cds that we had bought or um or trading them on on uh websites or services and then um it became easier for us to to pay for them and then we stopped doing that, really. <laughs> we stopped stealing it wholesale like intellectual property from musical artists. So I think we're we're about to enter into that that age in um in typography where streaming type is going to become more of the norm. Mm. And people's people's sort of collections of vast numbers of pirated typefaces are going to be a lot less useful than just sort of streaming the typefaces you want for the moment
0: yeah my brain initially went to sort of students with that can't afford typefaces and you know they, they almost have to they, they want to use they have the knowledge to use you know a really good version of Helvetica that maybe you design for yourself um but obviously can't afford it because they just don't have the means to do it. Do you have any sort of thoughts on that sort of area of things? I don't yeah. want to get you in shit, by the way.
1: By oh, no, so. it's fine. It's fine. Um, <clears throat> I, think, I think for for students, we you know uh, the type industry is, and I mean, monotype is so big that it's difficult not to think of it as the type industry because I think there are a lot of foundries out there that are doing a great job of providing... Uh, reasonably priced typefaces to students or type type licenses for students. Um, I think we at Monotype have a ways to go. It's not that we're not thinking about it. We just haven't figured out how to do it at scale successfully yet. But to to provide um, students with a license that um, that allows them to use it for their schoolwork without having to pay a ridiculous sum of money that's completely out of bounds for them. Um, that said, I think the the convergence for those, those two concepts, the one um, of us providing students with a reasonably priced um, solution is in streaming fonts. Hmm. Um, so they should have access to everything. Um, but they should have access to it streaming. Like, hmm. yeah. I mean, all typefaces anywhere all the time. Um, but with,
0: a at a, at an access price that makes sense for a, a student. Yeah. Is that, is that the future then? Is that, is that what's coming sort of the Netflix of being able to just binge anything? I think that's the, I mean, it is, it's
1: already the reality for our agency partners and our brand partners at monotype. Um, they already have. I mean, agencies have access to our entire type library to pitch with, which mm-hmm. is essentially what students need. Um, they need access to the entire library to pitch student ideas. And we're providing that to agency partners. Um it's just a, it's just a matter of time mm. before
0: it reaches the student level. So I have kind of a break point in the middle of each show where I ask each guest the same question. And it's the idea of um, if we were in a lift together, why are we in a lift? I don't know. You live in a different country to me, but we're in a lift together and we're stuck in this lift. And I asked you, um, if you give me one thing from your career that has been sort of the heartbeat for yourself, um, the main inspiration point for you, and it could be anything you want, piece of music, a movie, anything, what would that be?
1: I should have thought about this because I know you warned me that this was going to happen.
0: <laughs> um,
1: you're going to hate me. Everyone will hate me if I if I say what I'm actually thinking. Um, I want a pencil and a blank piece of paper. That's all I ever want. <laughs> um, I find I find m- myself in situations where I don't have something to write or draw with and a surface to write or draw on, to be one of the most desperate situations that I'm ever in. I suppose I would find a way if I was at a place where I I would find a way to make a mark. Um, but to me, that's the, that's it. Like I want to be able to sort of, I, I've taken in so much stuff and at any point, the stuff that you've taken in your life is the is the stuff that you are thinking about as you decide what you're going to make. Um, and to me, yeah,
0: blank sheet of paper and a nice pencil would be enough. Mm, quite poetic. So, yeah, we have kind of touched on this in bits and being in the position that you're in, you're probably privy to sort of the future of the industry. Um, do you have anything that you could share that you maybe know of that's coming up, um, you know, with new technology or anything in the tight world?
1: Well, I think we've all sort of gotten acclimated to the idea of variable at this point. So variable fonts are now something that people sort of get conceptually. And if you don't, um, it's worth checking out. I'm not going to describe them. <laughs> It'd be better to go and just look up variable fonts. They're fun and um, it won't hurt you to go look. Um, so I think that is probably in the water at this point. Um, there's more evolution for that. Um, it's going to continue to evolve in ways that um are in some ways difficult to predict. Um in other ways that we're being shown the sort of green shoots of. So if you look at what Craig Ward has done um, with custom typefaces and variable, I think that's it's super interesting. Um it's not a monotype thing. Um and he's not paying me to tell you that. Um <laughs> but I find it sort of in as, as, in a way, indicative of the sort of fundamental thought that we need to do right now about how variable will change the the arc of typography in the twenty first century. Um, that said, I think, um, and I've thought this for a while since working with um, with Joseph Casuth and um, and Fred Wilson, and to some degree with with. Um, hansaka that the 21st century art form and even the late 19, the late 20th century art form is curation um there's so much that um that already exists that telling stories through the through curation um and creativity through curation or curation as creativity is the it is the horizon. Um, there's, n- it's no s- sort of small wonder to me that um, sort of mid journey style mashups or even the m- musical mashup um, arrived when it did. We just sort of we sort of reached this point where we so we are, are we are so connected um, that access to uh, a confusing array of variety or variety um leads us to make things that are curated from existing (laughs) things and it takes a hot moment for you to become aware that the curation itself is a creative act but once you do um the shift in perspective um of what creativity is and the possibilities of um of communication through creativity become become vast. Um, that's a sort of cryptic way of saying, I think
0: the next frontier in typography is curation. You mentioned Midjourney and um, Adobe are obviously doing some stuff with um, their kind of AI thing, where, with typography specifically, aren't they, where you can type out what you want the letter forms to look like? I assume you've seen this, um, where you can sort of say, I want a typeface, made made of duct tape, and they'll just, Magic it up. Do you have any thoughts on that at all? Is AI going to destroy us all? Basically, is what I'm asking you. As every <laughs> podcast is asking right now.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, will it destroy us all? The, I mean, the 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 greatest minds in computing seem to think that it will. Um I go, I vacillate probably like everyone does, between thinking. This is the most amazing thing that um that has happened in the course of my life and it being the most terrifying thing that I've ever seen. Um that said, I'm in I don't know that I'm in a I suppose if we continue to to say that it's the most amazing thing, then we're contributing to its inevitable rise and destruction of the human species. <laughs> but I, I find it endlessly fascinating to, to engage with because it's, um, it is the doorstep of what I, in the year, in the early aughts, 2003, I was, I was theorizing as a, a new plastic reality, um, that we would eventually connect so much of what we understand about ourselves in the moment and our history, um, through digital means that we would eventually create the ability through computing power to create a new plastic reality, a reality that wasn't real, but had so much of what we understand of reality baked into it, that we would be unable to discern it. <laughs> um, and so that you could say something like you say to Midjourney, and, Mid and this is why I call it the, the doorstep. Um, you can say, um, I, as I did, um, I would like to see, um, you know, WPA style black and white photographs of, um, the dust bowl. Um, but with a clown troop, um, just to sort of see what would happen. Um, cause there were no, I mean, people weren't clowning in the dust bowl in the United States. They were sort of trying to scratch out, um, life from a place that was being choked by dust um but the idea of inserting clowns into that and then having dorothea lang take photographs of them to me seemed like why not um and i could say that and it would do it for me and it would do it very convincingly that to me is the sort of doorstep of a new plastic reality where um and when i posted those particular images on Instagram. Um, it was early days of mid-journey, and so nobody had any idea where they came from. People assumed that Dorothea Lang had done these photographs. of, So they had achieved their purpose, which was to sort of show a new plastic reality, um, a fake reality, but one that was so convincing that, and I feel like there's a danger in that, obviously, but there's a thrill in it also. Um um, but boy, what it what it means for us as a species, um, what it means for us as uh, um, a political animal, what it means for us as nations—all of it is so fraught that it's really hard to get behind it wholeheartedly because there are so many people who will be fooled into doing mm. things that make no
0: sense. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to turn this into a, like a spiritual thing, but if it if it's getting to a point where we can't discern. This one at this table that I'm touching from an AI generated table. Do we live in a simulation? Do you think, Charles? Or
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, you, you you've probably seen the the latest uh, Marvel installation <laughs> um, on on Disney Plus, and it begins with this this sort of basic question. Or the premise of the show is that we've reached that point where. All information has become so dubious that um, the only thing you can trust is the, you know, the person you know. <laughs> um, I don't know. It is th- that we have verged into to um, philosophical territory, and I suppose that we'll deal with it in much the same way that we've dealt with a very, every major technological um, revolution in the past 400 years will sort of like bumble through. It will change us irrevocably. <laughs> and somehow we as a species will survive.
0: Do you think that um, there's, there was kind of, at the beginning of all of this, there was like a, a craft that went into doing things, you know? When people designed a typeface, for example, there was a real human craft that went into it. And given where we are now, the fact that I can type things into Google and a machine and it just spits it out, Do you think that we've lost sort of the love of craft? Uh, no, I don't.
1: Um, I mean, I think we still, those of us who loved craft, craft, (laughs) and we're in the love craft territory. Um, Those of us who loved craft before still loved, love craft. Um, And those of us who love craft define it for ourselves. So. It might be working with your hands. It might be your mind and hands. (laughs) Um, It might be only your mind. The craft doesn't have to necessarily involve this laborious nature of hand tools. Um, It's more the amount of time and thought and um, sort of, I don't know, spirit that you put into it, self that you put into it, time that you put into it. So. it's the craft is always there. If you want to sort of slow things down in a sort of Luddite manner and sort of go back to a time prior to the one that we exist in, it's fine. The nostalgia is, is I find, very problematic. Um, this idea of sort of ascribing to a previous period some better, better sort of way or better sort of time or better-ness. <laughs> um, it's problematic because all of those earlier periods were fraught in ways that um that you know made them suboptimal or not perfect so um i want to be alive today right now talking to you um and i want to i want to sort of be um uh not sort of happy in that moment but be very pleased to be in that moment um and you know watching the world change which is inevitable and watching the way that the the craft that i'm i'm vocationally drawn to change um it's a it's a joy it's a pleasure it's a we're lucky to be here
0: uh beginning to sort of round off now um there was like a um a trend a couple of years ago where everybody was stretching type uh, Spotify made it a huge thing for like that, Spotify Wrapped, as far as I can remember. Um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on sort of the trends that come and go, where people just sort of butcher type, but sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. Um, what do you think about
1: that? Um, I like them all. Um, I like them. I like them mostly when, uh, like you know what I what I've seen in the past couple of days. Um, is that the the mid journey aesthetic is becoming an, an aesthetic? It's becoming a trend. So I saw some graphics at Glastonbury, uh, and I wasn't there, but in the <laughs> in, in the videos that I've watched of it, um, and I just saw um, an agency sort of of um, uh, take it on. I've seen some. Um, I've seen some. Uh, Things on television, some things in in the subway that are obviously sort of um, acknowledging that this sort of weird warped aesthetic of mid-journey is with us. Um, And sometimes they make sense and sometimes they they don't. And typographically, I find the same thing. There's almost uh, an inevitability that there will be people who are looking for a new way to express an idea. They have... Content and concepts sort of rolled up in one another, and they create new, um, new um, aesthetics, um, new trends, and sort of shed them just as quickly um, because they're not interested in the trend itself. They're interested in the fitness of the style to the to the message. Um, that said, it's endlessly fun to watch. Um, to watch people cycle through trends like that crazy Art Nouveau trend that just sort of came and went. I mean, still sort of around, but it really came and went last last year and the year before. Um, I find all those things really exciting. I find the fact that those things can get into the water and influence people. And, you know, us very rational people can behave in ways that don't really make sense. I find that really exciting. Um, um trends of stretching type. I don't know. I don't have any I don't, nothing's nothing's so sacred that it can't be that it can't be violated. It is type after all.
0: Um yeah, so beginning to close off with the sort of the last question I ask everyone. Um it's very 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 cliche, but it's just the question of if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice when you first got started, what would that be for yourself?
1: It's, it's contradictory advice because I know that it I would not be able to follow it but um it is to trust trust your instincts um that sometimes the thing that your voice in, is telling you inside of your head that other people are telling you is not true is actually true um and it may take you a while to find out that what you what you thought was true is actually true <laughs> or the feeling that you had, or the thing that you wanted to do. Um, yeah, you have to trust yourself. Trust your own aesthetic. Trust your own sort of judgment. Trust trust yourself. Um, I think, um, you know, yeah, is there more to it than that? No, it's just trust yourself.
0: I think that's quite poignant. Do you ever get the chance to kind of and I don't want this to turn into me just sort of kissing your ass, but you've obviously worked in some like huge things now. You've 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 helped to redesign Helvetica, which is design. You know, it's it's ginormous, isn't it? Do you get a, Do you ever get a chance to kind of look back at what you've done at all and think to think about what you've done?
1: Nah, I don't. I mean, um, <laughs> to me, to to me, it is so much. Um, it's so much about process. Um, that I really, really love the those, I love the moment. Um, and I mean, I think of like the, those times when I really do feel really excited. Like I did this, uh, one that really pops to mind right now is I worked on this, um, this book called Free at Last, um, which, I mean, is a piece of period typography. Um, so it has a very sort of 19th century look big book like 600 pages five and a half by eight and a half um set in divini which is a sort of uh um, a 19th century modern um so like like bodoni but with tapered serifs um and the way that the book came together is like seven different authors um translating or transcribing firsthand accounts of freed men and women um Post slavery, in the, uh, uh, well, during the during the Civil War and post Civil War, um, but the documents were all techni- technically were set up in such an amazing way that um, that it was, despite the fact that it looks like a nineteenth-century artifact, it was an amazing accomplishment um, of of twentieth-century typesetting um and it's a beautiful book the the material is amazing um the design is um the design is nice i like it um the title page is beautiful jacket's not so great but the reason i'm walking down memory lane on that in particular and going into all the details that there was at the Maryland Historical Society a publication party where um, Ira Berlin the the chief editor Um, and all of the contributors were, were there and I got to talk to each of them and have them sign my book and, um, to sort of live in the moment and celebrate what we had done together. And that, that moment and most of those sort of book parties and openings or pub dates for typefaces or, um, speaking engagements, I find them all really amazing, um, But um, I don't spend a lot of time looking back on them or sort of patting myself on the shoulder because there's always this thing in front, this reason that you get up and do the thing that you want. And I have children who don't really find it that amazing, any of this stuff. (laughs) They keep me very grounded. Um, So, yeah, um, I enjoy all of it, but I enjoy the process of it.
0: And then... Super, super, super. Lastly, have you got anywhere where people can find yourself online?
1: Um, my Instagram feed is sort of um, um, where I like most people show, especially typographers, show what I've been looking at, what I'm finding interesting typographically, or seeing in my environment. Um, so, um, and I'm at Chasnix. That's C H A S N I X. Um, and that's my uh instagram handle i don't do twitter anymore i find it morally dubious um i'm not on facebook you can find me on linkedin but otherwise most of what i'm doing is um is available via uh, monotypes channels so you'll see a lot of me there
0: Mm -hmm. no that's fine then let me just stop recording Hello, it is I. Um, Thank you for listening. Um, Hopefully more of these to come. I mean, kind of good with the consistency of the last couple, but whether that will continue, I don't don't know. Um, Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) Um, Yeah, if you want to find me anywhere, I'm proud of the material Um, anywhere and everywhere, basically. Um, Yeah, and I will see you next time. Bye.